0: This podcast is for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to From Crime to Crime. Hey, buddy. How's it going?
1: Listen, well, you ready to just get into this? We Yeah.
0: <laughs> third time's a charm. Yeah.
1: We have recorded this episode. This would be the third time now. So yeah. just know we wanted to get you guys an episode really badly this week. And it's all my fault.
0: I think that's pretty clear. <laughs> it usually is. <laughs>
1: All right. No. <laughs> You ready to jump in?
0: Yeah. Let's just do this it. This week, Grant's going to tell the story, guys, because I've had a crazy busy week, and this is the third time we're recording this, so we're making Grant do it as punishment. So
1: <laughs> so you can tune out now, like this is your warning, or you can stick through it. Yep. On September 29th, 1982, seven people in the Chicago area ingested poisoned extra-strength Tylenol pills. All seven of them would end up dying that same day. The victims were Paula Prince, Mary McFarland... Mary Reiner... And Mary Kellerman.
0: That's a lot of Marys. It is
1: a lot of Marys, but they just all happen to be named Mary. It was a total coincidence. Yeah. No other reason.
0: Well, it's the Midwest. Everybody's <laughs> named Mary.
1: How many people do you know named Mary from the Midwest?
0: Well, my grandpa's sister's name is Mary and her daughter-in-law and her daughter-in-law. All right. Like there's three women in the same side of my family that are all named Mary.
1: They're all named Mary? Are they married?
0: Yeah. They're all married to men with the same last name because they're married to a grandfather, a son, and a son you know, a grandson. Oh my So they all have the same last name too.
1: Well, that's, that's ridiculous. (laughs) Like, honestly, but. Yeah, I know. And since you asked, my grandmother, who was born (laughs) in Ohio, uh, East Palestine, by the way, her name was also Mary. So. I guess you're right. It is a Midwest thing. Yeah, it must be. The last three victims were Adam Janus, Stanley Janus, and Teresa Janus. All three of these Januses were from the same family. 27-year-old and healthy and active Adam Janus collapsed at his home unexpectedly totally random and he had what were heart attack like symptoms and again he had no pre-existing conditions or anything like yeah he was 27 right and a healthy 27 year old like there was nothing going on but he had been rushed yeah to he the was ho- a
0: postman so he literally walked all day for a living
1: there was no reason why he should have these symptoms or where he would later die after being rushed to the hospital
0: yeah so
1: after returning home from the hospital, Adam's brother, Stanley, understandably upset, tense, had a headache. His older brother had just very unexpectedly had died. He saw a bottle of Tylenol on the counter, and he took a pill or two from the bottle. His wife, Teresa, who also was going through very similar emotions, also grabbed a pill or two from the bottle. Both of them collapsed in similar symptoms to Adam, and both later died as well. So, Stanley Janus was just 25 years old, and Teresa was just 19 making three deaths by three very young people in the same family on the same day. Just absolutely heartbreaking.
0: It is heartbreaking, but the only relief... That would come from that is that the three of them dying together in the same house on the same day is what would lead the investigators to connect that something was going wrong with the Tylenol because they were like, three people can't randomly die in the same house of natural causes on the same day. So that caused them to investigate on what could have killed them and poison was the only thing they could come to the, you know, was the only logical conclusion,
1: Absolutely. And on the night of the 29th, that's when Cook County investigator Nick Pishos started looking around to see if there were any other victims around the same age or indicted or had similar symptoms or anything like that. And he did come across these other victims. So Pishos compared the Janus bottle of Tylenol to the bottle of another victim uh, who had died in a very similar way, Mary Kellerman. He noticed that the one thing in common was a control number on the back of the bottle, MC2880. Other than that, like, there was nothing that matched about these bottles
0: at all. That was one connection, so they recalled everything with MC-2880 immediately.
1: It gave him a place to start, finally. Yeah. Deputy medical examiner Edmund Donahue suggested that Pischo smelled the bottle, and Pischo said that both of the bottles smelled like almonds, and I had no idea that cyanide smells like almonds.
0: Yeah. And did you know that only, like, 40% of the population can smell cyanide? No. Really? Yeah. Only like 40% of the population has the gene that makes you be able to smell cyanide.
1: So like cyanide specifically, like if you can smell almonds, you can smell cyanide or?
0: No, no, no. Just cyanide. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, that's equally just
1: as terrifying.
0: Well, so it's lucky though that Pishos could smell it because if he was one of the people that couldn't smell it, he might've said, no, there's nothing. It's
1: a really good point. I didn't think about that. In any yeah. of these three recordings I'd never thought about that. So Yeah. <laughs> that is a good point.
0: See, I guess third times it is a charm.
1: Yeah, we're learning something new. Cyanide yeah. is obviously a poison, and when exposed to it, its symptoms include things like seizures, cardiac arrest, and respiratory failure. So all of these are obviously very horrendous ways to die. And when the blood results came back, it showed that all seven of the victims had taken a dose from Between 100 to 1,000 times the lethal dose.
0: Yeah, it was way too much. I watched an interview with a member of the Janus family, and they said that they were told that it was enough to kill 26 elephants. Oh my gosh. So, way too much.
1: That is... an astronomical number
0: yeah was it wasn't it wasn't like a whoops no we messed up a little bit on the dosage of something in this like it was definitely on purpose wow
1: no i didn't i didn't realize it. that that's absolutely insane yep so deputy medical examiner edmund donahue spoke to a johnson and johnson attorney which is the parent company of tylenol on October 1st and let them know that investigators were pretty sure that the bottles of Tylenol had been intentionally poisoned with potassium cyanide. So that night, the announcement was made that all Tylenol would be pulled from the shelves immediately it was all coming off
0: yeah instead of just the specific batch numbers from the vic they were like okay this is too many batch numbers let's just pull everything
1: absolutely this meant more than 31 million bottles were recalled and recalled bottles would be replaced with new bottles so good on johnson and johnson but they also put up a hundred thousand dollar reward for anybody who had information leading them to the person who had poisoned the bottles Again, that's a huge number, but they had to yeah. had to find out what was going on. Yeah. At this point, this whole thing is estimated to have cost the company a hundred million dollars, which that's a whole lot of money. Now, in 1982,
0: that is an astronomical number. Yep. But they did really good. I mean, they still even teach their response to this in business schools because they did everything right when this happened. They recalled, they replaced, they even paid advertisements. Like they pulled commercials and stuff off the air and they paid for new commercials telling people to throw out their Tylenol. Wow.
1: I mean, they really did go through everything and they had to. People were dying. Yeah. Like they had no other choice, but luckily they responded in the probably the best possible way that they could. I mean, if if they're still talking about how they responded, it must have been just
0: that's the standard. Yeah, it's definitely not how they would respond today. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, that's kind of what I was thinking, which is crazy. But yeah, by October 5th, both the FBI and the attorney generals had also been brought in to investigate this case, which good for local authorities for including them because they needed more manpower mm-hmm. between local authorities and the feds. They had twelve hundred actual leads, which yeah, so many actual leads to go off of.
0: Uh, it was chaos. I'm sure. I mean, besides the panic of people dying from Tylenol, it was just chaos. The amount of leads they had to follow, and the amount of different investigators that were involved, because each one of these poisonings happened in a different suburb of Chicago or in Chicago itself. Like there was like eight different police departments plus the feds involved in this.
1: Right, and even though that this only happened in Chicago and like its outskirts, people all all over the country started believing that they had been poisoned, too. So this obviously caused mass chaos in hospitals and poison control centers. They were being
0: inundated with people left and right. Well, yeah, because who takes Tylenol? People who are sick. (laughs) So if you're sick and then you take Tylenol and then you're sick, you're like, hey, (laughs) did I get one of the interviews with one of the investigators I saw? He's like, hey, if you had time to dial our number and ask us these questions like you're fine. You didn't get one of the bad ones. Like it was that there was so much cyanide. Like it happened that fast. Like these people would not have time to like be freaking out about this and call. and
1: Yeah. And this was so bad for the people in Chicago that police actually started going around using their PA systems out of their cars and warning people yeah. about the bottles of Tylenol and to throw them out that they were no good and they'd been poisoned and stuff. So it was crazy.
0: Yeah. Telling people to flush their Tylenol, which probably saved a lot of lives. too. Oh, I'm
1: sure that it did. You know, they would kind of pull back on that later. But but yeah, I'm sure it saved a lot. A lot of lives and that's what they had to do
0: yeah well pull back on that later only because then they didn't test all the bottles so they don't really right. know how much was actually out there but
1: exactly but yeah
0: but if it saved one life it was worth not ever knowing how much was actually out there
1: absolutely and one of the facts of this case that really confused police was that all of the victims had bought their bottles of Tylenol from different stores and these stores got their batches from different production plants. So police really had no idea how this could be happening.
0: Well, it was starting to become more obvious that it didn't happen during manufacturing like they assumed it did at first, because if it did, then it would have been all over the country, not just in Chicago.
1: Right. And that would have made sense for, you know, an employee to have put them in and, you know, easy right. peasy, but now they're learned they're figuring out that's not what happened. Right. And with over 10 million recalled pills, they only found 50 capsules that contained cyanide across eight different bottles, and five of those bottles belonged to the victims. So mm-hmm. the other three, two of them were part of the recall, but the last bottle was found just sitting on a store shelf waiting to be bought. And I just I think that's so crazy to think about.
0: Yeah, so three total that still could have been Harmful, but then, like like they said, they have no idea how many more. Because if somebody could have bought them and then just tossed them, they don't know.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, they still had that last bottle. And before you can ask, there were no fingerprints on that bottle. And this was 1982, so they didn't have any cameras. Well they had cameras they were a thing but they weren't as common as they are and they certainly didn't cover as much ground as they did in a store or parking lot so you know yeah
0: they're about as clear as they still are today <laughs>
1: right that was going to be the next thing i said like <laughs> you are looking now
0: and you're like dude i don't know that guy's you know yeah that could be anybody that guy's
1: robbing a bank and it looks like you know it could be on mars who knows
0: oh i didn't know there was banks underwater how did you get this camera footage <laughs> yeah right
1: <laughs> i was <laughs> real like...
0: confused there for a second i was like um yeah
1: what absolutely it, it does completely look like these people are underwater and- yeah so in
0: 1982 you can imagine i'm sure it was like oh something moved across the screen it, like it was like watching skinamax it, it was like watching skinamax yeah. in the yeah. 90s looking
1: for a nipple it's all scrambled. <laughs> Yeah. you're like oh i think it might have been it i think i saw one yeah <laughs> Anyway, so obviously, police have no clue who this could be. And one of the tactics they used was they publicized the funerals, and this was in hopes that the killer would come to one of them. Because we know killers love to come back to the scene of the crime. So they put it out there hoping that this would lure this person or persons.
0: Yeah, because at the time they're thinking like, oh this might have been a targeted thing. You know, like maybe this person was trying to kill somebody specifically, not just random.
1: Exactly. And from what they could tell, nobody suspicious did come to these funerals. So they started to speculate that this could be a white collar crime syndicate and the intention of this white collar crime syndicate would be a tank Johnson and Johnson stock which this did take a big hit Tylenol went from owning 38% of the non-prescription pain reliever market to just 8% overall of this so that's a massive fall cuz nobody wanted to mess with Tylenol anymore like who knew what yeah. what it could be
0: so they were literally like Advil did this <laughs> like, yeah right <laughs> Are you kidding me
1: Bear like, snuck into they, the into the batch
0: yeah I'm like, ah, I guess you have to look at all the possibilities, but that seems like a big risk because even though, yes, it tanked Tylenol's stock specifically, it would make people distrust pharmaceuticals in general. Like I wouldn't be taking an Aleve either, you know, Yeah. (laughs) or an Excedrin or an Advil, like there's no way.
1: Yeah, especially when you get down to it and all these companies are owned by the same people anyway, so it's all coming from the same place.
0: Yeah. So it's like, I eh, don't I don't know. I, I do understand why they had to look at it that way, but that's to me feels like the least likely scenario. Oh.
1: Yeah, I think so too. A crime syndicate yeah. doing it this way, yeah. This seems pretty unlikely, but they looked everywhere. They looked at disgruntled employees too. They started talking to everybody who might have had any kind of reason to do this. They even started looking like at release like psych ward patients to see like what they were up to and stuff like that. Like you know, like they were they were lurking looking under every single rock. They didn't know what to do, but the best theory that police had was that this person. Who did this went to the store, bought the bottles, left the store, and either went home or did this in their car and took the capsules apart, planted the cyanide in the pills, returned the bottles back to the store around September 28th. And the reason they had this date in mind was because obviously this would be one day before the first death occurred. And the reasoning why they came up with this was that the cyanide would eventually eat through the capsules. So whoever did this would have to have done it close to the time that the capsules were purchased and consumed.
0: Otherwise it would have ate them away in the bottle.
1: Absolutely. Eroded them. And that's why they led them to believe that the person must also be from the Chicago area as well. It's probably not somebody from out of town or out of state or anything.
0: Eh, I mean, I get what they're saying, but it just means that the person was in Chicago. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be from there.
1: It would have to be pretty quick though, because somebody would have to have all of what they Right, but just
0: because somebody is in Chicago to do this doesn't mean that they live there.
1: It's true. No, there's definitely reasons why you can get in and get out Chicago in the same day. Yeah. So, That's all we really know about the murders. We know what happened, but we still don't know who did them.
0: Yeah, but this changed the way everything was done from here on out.
1: Oh, this is the reason why we have the the seals on our bottles now for... Of Tylenol or anything else like Tylenol really went to extreme measures. I guess Johnson and Johnson did, but went to extreme measures to make sure that their product could get back onto the shelves. And they, with the FDA came up with the seal around the bottle and stuff. And if, you know, obviously if that has been messed with, you don't touch it.
0: Yeah. The seal on the lid and then the foil on the top, because it used to just be cotton. It used to just be like, open it up. And then there was a piece of cotton in there and you pulled it out. And that was it. So now that they have the heat trunk seals and the, or the, the foil seals on the top, and they changed from capsules that you could pull apart to tablets.
1: Is that why they went to tablets?
0: Yes. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that either. Yeah. That's why they don't use capsules anymore. Hmm. I didn't know that.
1: Yep. So let's talk about the main suspects of this case. Nobody's ever been caught, but there are a few people who uh, who point towards Probably this, did it. Who... Probably maybe did this. <laughs> it points to them allegedly as a, as a possibility, slight, at least slightly. Yeah. So the first one, and probably your favorite one, Roger Arnold.
0: Oh, no. He's not the one, I think.
1: No? No. Oh, well, I guess we'll get into it.
0: We still got to talk to him about him anyway. <laughs>
1: it's true. We do. So Roger Arnold, he was a dock worker who- said some pretty suspicious things about the murders in a bar one night, and when police questioned him, this guy had a couple connections that made him more interesting to them than he had been originally, so... First, he worked at a Jewel warehouse, and Jewel's like a convenience store in the Midwest. And he, not only did he work there, he worked there with one of the fathers of one of the victims, Mary Reiner. One of the other victims, Adam Janus, had purchased his bottle of Tylenol from a Jewel convenience store. And where Mary bought hers were across the street from where Roger's ar- wife, <laughs> this is getting tough, was across the street from where Roger Arnold's wife's psych- psychiatric ward was located. So, okay.
0: Yeah, that's kind of reaching. It's a
1: lot. Okay. I'll be honest. It was it was a lot to say.
0: Yeah. So he worked at a jewel warehouse, and one of the victims' fathers worked with him, and then one of the other victims bought his Tylenol from a jewel store.
1: Yes, that was across the street from his wife's psychiatric ward. So there was a reason for him to be in the
0: area. Uh, okay. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Right.
1: They also found two crime manuals in his home, and they also found out that he was uh, to
0: what. To what? They were described as crime manuals. Like crime for dummies?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it's crime for dummies. I think it's more like, hey, here's an illegal thing and how to do it. I think.
0: They didn't have the internet back then.
1: Exactly. So I'm not sure where you get this. I don't know if it's passed around through the black market or whatnot. But what they also found out about him was he was a somewhat of a, a chemist enthusiast, we'll say. So he had beakers and other types of chemistry equipment in his home. And they also found a... B- so... Yeah, go ahead and say it. So,
0: so he was making meth.
1: Um, they don't say that, but...
0: Well, who else is like an at-home chemist? Like a DIY chemist? Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's that's in americans Yeah, i kind of thinking so. Just checking.
1: Yeah. So anyway, but they, they call him an at-home chemist, a chemist enthusiast. But anyway, yeah. they also found a bag of powder and the bag was tested. And though it turned out to be potassium carbonate and not potassium cyanide. So close, but not quite.
0: Is it close, though? Or do we not know?
1: Oh, I have no idea. I mean, they both start yeah, with I potassium. Like, I have
0: no, yeah, I was like, I have no idea. what. No. Do people just have potassium carbonate or is that an ingredient in meth? <laughs> Again See what I'm saying here,
1: yeah, I okay, I, I don't know the ingredients to meth or pretty much anything else like that, so okay, if anybody is a scientist and knows, I would love to know, but yeah, no, Roger Arnold also refused to take a lie detector test, which he should have refused, like we agree yeah. with that, that's a that's smart choice, fine.
0: yeah, yeah,
1: so they didn't have enough to prosecute him, but they had some connections to him,
0: yeah, so he was talking shit at a bar that he had cyanide, right, and that he had knowledge of this. And And then there was some connection. I mean, I get why he's a big suspect, for sure. And then what he does after he became a big suspect was kind of like, hey, dude, if you don't want people to think you're a murderer, like, probably don't be a murderer.
1: Correct. That would help. That would help. Um, and what he did next in 1983 did not help him because in 1983, no. Roger Arnold was again at the bar and he shot a man named John Stanicia, who Arnold thought had turned him into the police for his previous comments at the bar earlier. Yeah. It was later revealed that it was not Stanicia who said anything, but Stanicia did die of his wounds and Arnold Was sentenced to 30 years in jail, but he was let out early on parole for good behavior, I guess.
0: Yeah. I mean. Yeah, John Stanisha looked a little bit like the guy who actually turned him in. And so he was just like, oh, hey, you're the guy who turned me in and shot him because he was obviously intoxicated, murderous. DIY Son of a gun?
1: No, I like that too.
0: And I also don't know how he got let out early. I mean, he killed a guy. Right. In cold blood on the street in Chicago, like in front of people. It wasn't even like in secret.
1: Because he thought he said something and it wasn't even him.
0: Yeah. So that guy's a bad dude, but I don't think he was smart enough to pull this off, to be real honest.
1: No, it certainly doesn't seem like it. The next suspect is Ted Kaczynski. Does that name sound familiar to you?
0: Yeah, this is my favorite suspect.
1: Okay, so the Unabomber. (laughs) <laughs> For anybody who doesn't isn't familiar with uh, with Ted Kaczynski's an Illinois native, which, yep. you know, already puts ties his to parents
0: him. lived in Chicago at this time.
1: And the first bomb of his that was found was in Chicago. So he's known to to be around the Chicago area
0: and to do stupid shit like this
1: to do a lot of stupid shit. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Because like four of his bombs ended up being in the Chicago area.
1: Yeah. So we know that he likes to stay local.
0: Yeah. And do banana stuff on a random scale.
1: He does do that too. Absolutely. Yep. In 2009, FBI retested- 2009? T- I, I know. I was going to say 19 and I stopped like, nine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In 2009, the FBI retested all irrelevant evidence and requested a DNA sample from old, uh, old Teddy there. And he was said he was willing to provide a sample willingly on one condition. He wanted the courts to rule that the United States marshals could not conduct an auction of his belongings. His reasoning was that people can have similar DNA or what he would call partial DNA profiles. Uh, and if one person who did the crimes bought his items, his DNA could be tied to the killings, so he would give them the test if they wouldn't sell his stuff.
0: Yeah, which is not really how that works, (laughs) and he didn't really understand how DNA works. But I don't... I'm just saying... But I don't necessarily disagree with him. I don't think they should have auctioned his stuff. I know why they did it. They were trying to give money to his victims and his victims' families. I get that. But by auctioning his stuff, you have no way to tie him to future crimes like this. Like when he became a suspect in the Tylenol killings, if you want to go and test all of the stuff in his apartment to see if he had cyanide or any proof that he did the Tylenol killings, there would be no way to do that if you sold all of his stuff.
1: And that was something that he kind of, sort of said too, but not in so many words. So, yeah, even he was like, "You shouldn't do this." But he thought that his reasoning was because he would be able to keep his innocence from it. So, anyway,
0: yeah, he had some bananas reasoning. Yeah, exactly. They said no anyway, and they sold his shit. So, and he he said said no. Then (laughs) he
1: said, "Okay, then I won't give you my DNA. So we're even."
0: Yeah. Which is not really a problem because he's a convicted felon. So they're going to take his DNA anyway. It's just whether or not they're going to do it unwillingly or willingly. Yeah, So completely. I'm pretty sure they got his DNA at some point.
1: So another interesting piece, which is a real shot in the dark, but two months prior to all of this happening in Sheridan, Wyoming, a man named J. Adam Mitchell died in the same way. He was poisoned with Tylenol. On, in Sheridan, Wyoming, yeah. which the reason this was connected to Ted was because Sheridan, Wyoming is on the way from Chicago to his um, hut. I, I mean, it's a cabin. Cabin. It's a cabin yeah. in Montana, but it, it's a little hut. Like,
0: it's a small yeah. little thing. There was that connection, too. This could have been a test run. Exactly. Is the theory behind that. Yeah. Exactly. So. And the wood connection. The wood connection is... Is a big deal, and it's it's kind of I mean out there. But put your tinfoil hats on on for this one, guys, because this is where it gets a little wonky. I will let
1: you say this one because this one takes me on all kinds of rides. So
0: yeah, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, had some weird fascination hard on <laughs> pun intended for wood. <laughs> Like he liked to live in the woods, but he also had like a weird obsession with words that were connected to wood. Like some of his victims have had last names that were types of wood or actual wood
1: or in the forestry department.
0: Yes. And he would put the return addresses on some of his bombs would be like James Woods from Wood Lake, California at 123 Wood Street. Like yep. he had some weird thing with wood. The connection with the Tylenol murders with that would be that the founders of Johnson & Johnson's middle name was Wood.
1: Each of them had the middle name Wood, which is suspicious as can be, honestly, when you talk about someone like this.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if you take your tinfoil hat and you receive all that information, I love it. I think it's a fantastic theory. You do love it. Well, it's just so right up his alley, Ted Kaczynski. I mean, this is so something he would do. I mean, he literally did the exact same thing with bombs. Yeah. You know what I mean?
1: I mean, you're not wrong and it does kind of make sense, but I don't know. When I first heard it, I didn't think it was likely at all. And the more that I've been listening to it, being the third episode or the third time we've done this episode...
0: You have kind
1: of convinced me a little bit more than you had, so I will give you that.
0: All right, so now you can take your tinfoil hat off and go with the... uh, The prime suspect. Suspect that everybody else thinks is the guy.
1: This is the suspect that everybody else thinks. His name is James Lewis. James Lewis does put himself into the thick of this, so it is kind of his fault.
0: Yeah, 100%.
1: So James Lewis seemed like a pretty normal guy. He was a tax accountant, and on Wednesday, October 6th, so about a week after the first death, Johnson & Johnson received a photocopy of a handwritten letter. Even though it wasn't the original, police were still smart enough to dust it for prints. James Lewis was not smart enough to realize that even though it wasn't the original, his handprints would still be on the paper, even though he didn't write on the paper. So, yeah. his fingerprints showed This
0: motherfucker it. made a copy of... <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second. He made a photocopy of the letter he wrote so that his fingerprints wouldn't be on it and then touched it with his hand. Yeah,
1: it was pr- it was brilliant.
0: Super smart.
1: So, the letter reads, Erica, would you like to read the letter to us?
0: Yeah, I'll read it. Trigger warning, guys. This is the dumbest thing you've ever heard. <laughs> so, the letter reads, Johnson and Johnson, parent company of McNeil Laboratories. Gentlemen, as you can see, it is easy to place cyanide, both potassium and sodium, into capsules sitting on store shelves. And since the cyanide is inside the gelatin, it is easy to get buyers to swallow the bitter pill. Another beauty is the cyanide operates quickly. It takes so very little, and there will be no time to take countermeasures. If you don't mind the publicity of these little capsules, then do nothing. So far, I've spent less than $50, and it takes me less than 10 minutes per bottle. If you want to stop the killing, then wire $1 million to bank account number 8449597 at Continental Illinois Bank, Chicago, Illinois. Don't attempt to involve the FBI or local Chicago authorities with this letter. A couple of phone calls by me will undo anything you could possibly do, because his—oh. That's it. That's it. <laughs> The end.
1: Yeah. Because his prints were on the letter, a warrant for his arrest was issued. But James was nowhere to be found until December 13th. That's when he was spotted in New York at a local public library annex. And the crazy thing about the bank account number was that it wasn't linked to James Lewis. It actually belonged to a man named Frederick Miller McKahie. And James Lewis believed that his wife had not been paid for work she had done by McKahie. For McKahie. For McKahie, right. She, she was a bookkeeper. He believed that she was owed $511, and he thought if he did this, it would expose McKayhee for not paying his wife the money. Which, okay. But it was eventually ruled that Lewis had nothing to do with the murders, and that he was just a big idiot, and he did a really dumb thing like this. Yeah. This is a really, really dumb thing to do. Do not involve yourself in this.
0: Yeah. Well, and his mindset was that he would give his wife's ex-boss's bank account so that they would investigate him him as the murderer and then find out that he didn't pay his employees that was a check but like that's not what's gonna happen
1: that was his idea yeah
0: yeah but that's not what's gonna happen correct yeah (laughs) this is so dumb anyway
1: well it's not what happened
0: either yeah Although his past also doesn't make him look very good either, just like Roger Arnold.
1: Well, that's the thing. So by him doing this, this put him on police radar and they started looking into his past. They started seeing that, well, he actually may be the Tylenol murder after all. Yeah. He had, like we said, a suspect history and stuff like he chased his mother with an axe when he was 19, not to mention in 1966. When he was committed to the Missouri State Mental Hospital after ingesting 36 Anacin pills, uh, and while he was there, he was diagnosed with catatonic schizophrenia. He was trying to say that both of these things were done to try and to avoid the Vietnam War. So he said that these were calculated. He meant to do these things (laughs) to get out of Vietnam.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's what I would do. To get out of the draft, you know, instead (laughs) of just like moving to Canada, I would chase my mom around with an axe and try to take a bunch of anison pills and
1: just fake an injury, you know, and you you wouldn't have to go.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, whether or not it was fake to get out of the Vietnam War, there was other things that he did that would make him pretty suspect in a murdered case also, so...
1: Well, one of the big things was that he had been charged and acquitted for the murder of a man named Raymond West. What made this even worse was that Raymond West had been found completely dismembered in his own home in the summer of 1978.
0: Yeah, and he actually wasn't tried and acquitted. He was arrested. He didn't get tried? No, because they forgot to read him his Miranda rights.
1: Oh, I thought they f- re- did that, figured that out while they were in trial.
0: Nope, oh. before they went to trial. And so the charges, the judge deemed everything that they found inadmissible. So they never were able to try him for it. But all the evidence pointed to him, but there was nothing they could do. I mean, he was the last person to see him. He was found with a $5,000 forged check from the guy. He p- even put a note on the guy's front door that if anybody had any questions about where he was to call him.
1: <laughs> so he puts himself in bad places.
0: Yeah, so when the guy went missing and people started going to his house friends, they were like why is there a note from some from his tax guy? <laughs> on yeah. the door like that says to call him and then when people would call him he'd be like oh yeah he's out of town well then they ended up finding his body in his own house so he was not out of town yeah so he was definitely something was allegedly going on there but Certainly they forgot like to it. read him his Miranda rights and so they had to throw the whole thing out this guy just gets like a break after a break after a break
1: he does he, he keeps doing that absolutely some other things that Made Lewis a little suspicious was Lewis and his wife had launched a business venture and it was a short one, but they were attempting to make pills or they were attempting to bring pill making machines from India. So,
0: yeah, they were involved in some kind of scheme there. Right. So, This is already
1: suspect enough, and that's very specific. I mean, I don't know about you. I've never been involved with any kind of pill-making.
0: Nope, just pill-taking. Hey! Vitamins.
1: Right, of course.
0: Yeah, but he was also suspected of... Like huge credit card schemes and shit too, right? In the 80s. He was in
1: 1981 before the Tylenol murders. He was accused of making false credit card applications and using fake addresses with, with fake mailboxes, which is pretty cool because he would just put mailboxes in like cement.
0: Yeah. He took, like, a Home Depot bucket and filled it up with cement and put mailboxes in him, and then just, like, moved him around the city. Which, I mean, that's that's some thinking. That's some 1980s shit now. Like, you would never get away with that now. It's
1: because it's a lawless land. That's why. You could do stuff like this.
0: Yeah. Although it wasn't that lawless because he got in trouble for this and that's what made him skip town and run to Chicago and start living under a fake name. It's
1: true. In December of 1981, that's when police found enough evidence to arrest both Lewis and his wife, which is what caused both of them to flee. So right while they were in Chicago, they lived under fake names, which was just short of a year. So they weren't there very, very long, but... It would place Lewis in Chicago with a shady past right in line with when the Tylenol murders happened. So, all of this lines up, Lewis is probably the one that did this.
0: Supposedly, everybody thinks so.
1: Except, the Lewis's bought Amtrak tickets from Chicago to New York City on September 4th, 1982. So, 25 days before the first Tylenol death.
0: Yeah, so if they would have done it before they left for New York, the cyanide would have eaten through the capsules.
1: Exactly. That's exactly right. So they knew it couldn't have been that far out. Mm -hmm. One of the drugstore cameras did spot a bearded man who some people think looks a lot like Lewis, but nobody could really put a positive ID on it. And like we talked about, it's hard enough to positively ID somebody on security cameras today. Forget about doing it then. Like, they all look like Bigfoot. So what does it matter? Yeah. Also, no one could place Lewis back in Chicago before the deaths, which is minimal. Like, it's a minor thing, but nobody could, could say that for sure that he had been there, so...
0: Yeah, but if he traveled back to Chicago under a fake name to commit mass murder by doing this... I doubt he like called up his buddies and was like, hey, let's have a beer while I'm in town. Like he probably went there with the intention of not letting anybody know he was there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You definitely could be right. And, you know, police did check all the travel records and there was no proof to suggest that either of the Lewises had returned back to Chicago. So,
0: yeah, but they use tons of aliases. So who knows?
1: Very, very true police never had anything to prosecute lewis for the crimes much less convict him so they couldn't yeah. really do anything
0: except for the letter they did have enough to convict him for the letter they
1: did he was convicted for extortion for his original letter writing caper and then he was sentenced yeah. to 20 years in prison but he only served 13 years of the 20 years which i mean i think is a pretty fair fair thing like 13 of 20 yeah that seems reasonable for writing a letter A stupid, stupid letter.
0: Yeah. 13 years does seem like a lot for a letter, but I feel like they gave him that much because they thought he was the Tylenol murder. Like, they were, like, punishing him for more than just the letter. Yeah,
1: no, I think they gave him the max that they could, for sure. Yeah. While Lewis was in jail, he offered to help investigators with the Tylenol murder case, and he explained in detail about how someone might go about injecting the Tylenol capsules with lethal doses of cyanide.
0: Yeah, he drew them like a little diagram of a board where somebody would drill holes in it to hold the capsules so that they could go out to their car and then dump all the capsules out and then put the cyanide in and then put the lids back on and put it back in. And he said you could do it in like less than five minutes in the back of your car, which I guess is a pretty smart way to do it, but also I I feel like unnecessary. Like somebody could just go buy one bottle of Tylenol, go back to their house fill up all those capsules and then just go into the store and dump a few of the capsules into each bottle that they wanted to lace. Like they wouldn't have to do a few capsules out of each bottle all at the same time. You know what I mean?
1: I do know what you mean. I get what you're saying. And I think it's real suspicious that he has an idea that quickly about what to do. Yeah. I mean, he did have the pill making business. Yeah, it just sounds business. like a
0: dumb idea.
1: It does. But he had that pill making business. So, I mean, maybe he had some inside information. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. It's hard to say.
0: I don't know. It just seems like the dumbest way to do it, so. Well. (laughs) But this guy's not smart. Right. I mean, he's definitely not the sharpest tool in the shed, so.
1: No, he's not. But he was released from jail in 1995, and he lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts with his wife. Uh, And he's since published a book titled Poison, The Doctor's Dilemma, which he... He said the book had nothing to do with the Tylenol murders and that he regretted ever sending the, the police the, the letter in the beginning. So, which I'm sure he did because that put him on the, on the map.
0: Yeah. His book about poisoning a town has nothing to do with the Tylenol murders.
1: Well, it, it, it was about poison, but it was about water being poisoned in like a South Missouri city. So like same, but different kind of. So
0: like, yeah, the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, so kind of like the same but yeah this guy's just an asshole right I don't think he did if he did the Tylenol murders and he's doing all this he's an asshole and he's stupid
1: I I definitely think he's doing it to toy with the police absolutely
0: yeah he is but I don't think he's doing it to toy with the police because he did it I think he's doing it to toy with the police because he didn't do it
1: I think that could be part of it too and I think that's Probably likely, but you'll get a kick out of this. In 2010, he went on a public access radio show and he went with the intention of promoting his book. But what ended up happening was he ended up giving a 48 minute interview that were mostly questions targeted to his involvement in the Tylenol murders. And... And what happened was it was him and another or it was him and a host, and they had people call in and pretty much everybody calling in was asking about the Tylenol murders. There was really yeah, not course. a lot else going on there and and everyone well, because who nobody read his book. well, yeah, of course not, but everybody who came on, he kept directing him to you know the lawyers and he refused to make any more comments and stuff like that. So yeah, that makes sense. but um, yeah, I mean, he was just doing it to get some attention. I think I don't think he had a whole lot to actually say.
0: Yeah. And I do understand why he's, the, I mean, he wrote the letter. He's allegedly killed before, even though he wasn't charged with it because he got away with it. Um, he was definitely into fraud, living under aliases. I mean, they definitely were doing bad stuff. Definitely. Like, I understand why he's the number one suspect. I just really don't think he's smart enough to be the guy. To be honest with you, because he wasn't even smart enough to realize that when you photocopy a handwritten letter, you still can't touch the photocopy or your fingerprints are going to be on it. You know know, what I mean? Isn't that great? But yet he was smart enough to not touch the pill bottles. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, although that could have been by accident, it could have been because he knew he had to wear gloves to work with the cyanide. Absolutely. So that could have been by accident that he didn't touch the pill bottles. I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I maybe he is the best suspect. I don't know.
1: It it there isn't a clear one. I think that's what the hard thing is about it. Is there's a lot of people who have a lot to do with it, but nobody has a clear cut answer for who it was, or you know, the likely scenario.
0: Yeah, like if they turn out to figure out someday who it was for sure. It could be any one of these three guys and I'd be like, okay, makes sense.
1: It could be somebody completely different too.
0: Well, that's, yeah, obviously, yeah. I just don't know how they're ever going to figure this one out.
1: I mean, without DNA, they may not.
0: Yeah, because they destroyed yeah, all the bottles.
1: Exactly. So, I don't think they're going to be able to figure it out until unless somebody confesses and can give them, like, proof. proof that hasn't been released to the public. I don't know that they will be able to figure it
0: out. Right. They don't have much to go off of. At least we now know that People can't do this now because of all the tamper-proof stuff that it caused. It also caused the federal government to put laws into place that makes tampering with consumer products a felony. Good. A federal offense. Good. If anybody did this now, first of all, they'd get caught because of TNA and surveillance cameras and everything else. But they also couldn't do it now because things are so... Much better seal.
1: I think about this with every single crime that happens. I'm like, did anybody think they were going to get away with that? There's ways to track people everywhere. Like, always satellites watching us or something. Like, you can't get away with anything.
0: Stop trying. Yep. Well, good good case, Grant. Good job. Thank you. I'm glad we finally got it done on the third recording. Well, we haven't <laughs> saved
1: it yet, so... uh if you're, if you're hearing this, then hey, we did it. If not, then yeah. we ditched the title <laughs> of murders yeah.
0: altogether. So we also decided that we needed to come up with a way to end each episode instead of change your Amazon smile because Amazon got rid of their smile program and we hate them and we're all going to cancel our Prime together, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Although I still haven't done mine yet, so don't do yours yet, guys, either. I mean, unless you want to, then do it. But don't do it because I'm telling you to. Just never mind.
1: <laughs>
0: anyway. <laughs> So we decided that we're going to close out each episode with just like a short synopsis of a missing person and just give you like the real basic details of a missing person's case and then we'll post some pictures on social media in case anybody has any information. So the missing person that we're going to be telling you about this week is James Joseph Allen. And his name, his profile doesn't have a lot of information, except that he was in contact with his family sporadically. And the last time they had contact with him was April 20th of 2022. So almost a year ago. And he was in his truck, his Honda Ridgeline, with his trailer attached to it, a, a camping trailer, and his dad dog named Hannah, who was a white curly haired dog. And he was supposedly going camping west of Las Vegas. So maybe in the Red Rock area or Death Valley, maybe. They don't really know. But his family hadn't heard from him. And when they tried to contact him, his cell phone was disconnected and he hasn't been seen since. So we're going to post pictures of James Allen and his dog and his RV. So in case any of you have seen him,
1: let's find him together.
0: Yeah, it's just Hard to believe that a truck, a trailer, a dog, and a person, like, where... Those are some big items. Yeah, and it's not like his trailer was, like, you know, where one of these DIY chemists people would be like do it like it was a really nice travel trailer like it was a geo pro they're like pretty expensive hmm. his truck was in good shape like if you saw it out in the desert you wouldn't think oh it's just like an abandoned trailer
1: yeah and the good thing is is that this was recent so we have good photos of what we're looking for so you can go to our instagram and yeah. see what it is that he's got and see if maybe just maybe you've crossed paths with him
0: yep all right guys well that's it for us this week and we will see you next time
1: all right I love you.
0: Love you. Bye. Bye. This podcast has been a production of Orange Halo Media LLC, hosted by Grand Narica. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review wherever you listen to your podcast. To chat with us, go to From Crime to Crime on Instagram, From Crime to Crime on TikTok, From Crime the Number 2 Crime on Twitter, or you can visit our website at fromcrimetocrime.com. See you next Wednesday.